Please turn in your Bibles to Romans chapter 4. Our text for today from the Word of God is printed in your bulletin too. Let's read Romans 4 verses 16 to 25. The Apostle Paul wrote, That is why it depends on faith, in order that the promise may rest on grace and be guaranteed to all his suffering, not only to the adherent of the law, but also to the one who shares the faith of Abraham, who is the father of us all. As it is written, I have made you the father of many nations. In the presence of the God in whom he believed, he who gives life to the dead and calls into existence the things that do not exist. In hope he believed against hope that he should become the father of many nations, as he had been told, so shall your offspring be. He did not weaken in faith when he considered his own body, which was as good as dead, since he was about a hundred years old, or when he considered the barrenness of Sarah's womb. No unbelief made him waver concerning the promise of God, but he grew strong in his faith as he gave glory to God, fully convinced that God was able to do what he had promised. And that is why his faith was counted to him as righteousness. But the words, it was counted to him, were not written for his sake alone, but for ours also. It will be counted to us who believe in him who raised from the dead Jesus our Lord, who was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. Our great God, give us seeing eyes and hearing ears so that we can understand your word, know ourselves better, and love you more. Amen. How many of you played the old Oregon Trail video game? Do you remember that one? I grew up playing that game. And in the game, you bought supplies, and you packed your wagon in Independence, Missouri, and then you set out for the long trip to the promised land, Willamette Valley, Oregon. And along the way, you could talk with and trade with uh, your fellow pioneers, you could learn about landmarks, and you could hunt everything from squirrels to buffaloes. And the highlight of the game was, of course, the, num- the numerous opportunities to die along the way. From cholera and dysentery to snake bite and starvation, surviving the trail and making it to Oregon was difficult. When you died in the game, you got to write your own epitaph. Do you remember that? My brother used the same one every single time. He always made his epitaph. He tried, but he died. <laughs> you write your epitaph, you see if you made the high score list, and then with a click of a button, you start it all over again, and you can be back in Independence, Missouri, and, and try again, unlike the real Oregon Trail. So some of you remember that game. Is it good or bad that I learned most of what I know about the Oregon Trail from a video game? I'm not really sure. But since I moved to Idaho a decade ago nearly now, I've visited actually quite a few Oregon Trail historical sites, and I'm always amazed at how the pioneers were willing to lay it all on the line, even their lives, in order to make the trek across the United States. What would make someone do all that? Why would you pack up your stuff, give up your former life, leave your family and friends, ford rivers, endure months of difficulty, scarcity, hardship, threatened diseases, starvation, injury, loss of family members? The pioneers did all of that because they believed a promise. They believed a promise of uh, land, 
and of a future that was better than anything they could have where they were. They just needed to get up and go. And that promise is what propelled them, even compelled them to go west. So today's passage from Romans chapter 4 is about such a faith. It's about a promise that compelled a man named Abraham to do something that he never would have done otherwise. But here's the thing, though. The easiest thing in the world for a preacher to do at this point would be to say, you should have a powerful faith, too. Abraham had a, had a propelling, compelling faith. Therefore, be like Abraham, and you should have that kind of faith, too. But that wouldn't make a very good sermon, actually. Why? Because the reality is you already have a faith like that. You already believe something so earnestly that you got out of bed this morning. You already are so committed to some truth, some principle of reality, that that principle already guides your decision-making. It's already there. Now, maybe we're not very aware of the object of our faith, Maybe we haven't thought about it very much, or maybe you have. Maybe you're, you're very introspective and you ponder these kinds of things all the time. But I guarantee you that there is something that propelled you, compelled you even, to get up this morning, drink coffee, get dressed, and come listen to a sermon. There's something that made you do all that, something that you believe. And when you leave here today, there will be something that compels you, propels you to go and do whatever it is you end up doing this afternoon. So the question is not, do I have faith? A much better question is, what are the objects of my faith? And are they enough? Will they get me through life's challenges and seasons? As you can see from the title of the sermon in your bulletin today, today I hope to show you that vague faith won't do. It won't be enough to simply say, I have faith. Faith in what? That's the most important question. I think we can learn three things about faith from this passage this morning. So the first is actually that we do need faith like Abraham's. The Bible says that faith is being sure of things hoped for but not yet seen. And that's a good description, for example, of the Oregon Trail pioneers. They believed a wild promise about a land far away. It also describes this man Abraham, whose story is told in Genesis, the first book of the Bible. God gave the hundred-year-old Abraham a wild promise about a son who would be born in the future. That son would have many offspring, making Abraham the father of God's people. And those people would live in a very special place, a promised land that's even greater than the Willamette Valley. This whole story would be very familiar. You've got to understand, this whole story would be very familiar to the original readers of this letter. To them, this was not just some tale from long ago that the Apostle Paul is alluding to. This is the the founding story of the Jewish people. This is the moment in time when things change from there are no Jewish people to there are Jewish people. In ancient culture, founding stories were very important. They did not simply tell you your origins. They defined what kind of people you were. And they taught you what you were supposed to stand for and what you were supposed to pursue. So ancient Rome, this letter was originally written to Rome. Ancient Rome had three founding stories. Maybe you've heard. uh, Maybe you've heard some of them. Maybe you've heard of Romulus and Remus being nurtured by the she-wolf. Or maybe you've heard of the injustice done to Lucrezia and the vengeance that followed. 
Or the journey of Aeneas, traveling from the ruins of Troy to found a new Greek empire in the, in the Italian peninsula. All of these stories told the Romans something about what it meant to be truly Roman. That's the whole purpose of the stories. So all nations have similar stories. Americans have similar stories too, don't we? I mean, from Washington's cherry tree, we learned that Americans are supposed to be honest. From the first Thanksgiving, we, we learned that they're supposed to be generous. And from the Oregon Trail, we learned that we're, not, we're supposed to be uh, unafraid to do hard things. That's what it means to be an American. These stories define us and shape us more than we realize, probably. So it's not true that all of those things are always true of Americans, but they tell us something about what we're supposed to be like, where we come from, and where we're going. And the readers of this letter would have felt exactly the same way about the story of Abraham. Who are you? I'm a child of Abraham. And I'm supposed to follow after God just like Abraham did. Just as Abraham believed the wild promises of God and did difficult things, I'm the one, I'm supposed to do the same. I'm supposed to follow after my father Abraham. But it's important to notice what, the, what Paul the Apostle is doing here. It's very important to notice this. This is not some kind of tale of heroic trust despite overwhelming odds. Here he is deliberately returning to the things that he said in chapter 1. He is deliberately repeating themes from Romans chapter 1. Listen to his description of the deterioration of the human race from Romans chapter 1. He said, he wrote this, For his invisible, God's invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world and the things that have been made. And so humanity is without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking and foolish, and their foolish hearts were darkened Claiming to be wise, they became fools. And they exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. And therefore, God gave them up to the lusts of their heart, to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves. They exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worshipped and served the creature rather than the creator. That's from Romans chapter 1. Then here in chapter 4, he writes about how God, through Abraham's faith, is reversing all of that. He's putting human beings back together again so that they can rediscover what a genuinely human life looks like. That's what he's describing here. Because in chapter 1, humans ignored God, the creator. But here in chapter 4, Abraham believed in God's power as creator and life giver. In chapter 1, humans knew about God's power, but didn't worship him as God. Abraham recognized God's power and trusted him to use it. Human beings did not give God the glory that he was due. Abraham gave God the glory. Human beings dishonored their own bodies by worshiping things that were not divine. Abraham worshipped the God who gives new life and found, in, found that his own body had regained power even though he was long past the age for fathering children. So Paul the Apostle is doing something between chapter 1 and chapter 4 here. He's describing how God called Abraham to demonstrate how he would re 
Abraham is an example of how God is going to reverse the effects of sin on the entire human race. God is the God of new hope, of, new, of renewed fruitfulness. The one who created the world, which is mentioned there in verse 17, the one who created the world is recreating the world. That's what he's describing here. So Paul the Apostle wrote later in Romans that the true children of Abraham are all those who follow him in faith, who believe the wild promises of God. And that leads us to the second thing that we should see in this passage. The second thing is that the object of Abraham's faith is the resurrection of the dead. What was it that Abraham believed? Abraham believed that God raises the dead. Here in Romans 4, elsewhere in Hebrews 11, the faith of Abraham is described as believing that God can bring life out of death. That is, the God of the Bible is the God of resurrection. That was Abraham's faith, and it's meant to be our faith too. There are two parts to this, two parts that are equally important. First, we have to have faith in the real, physical resurrection of Jesus. We'll come back to some of what that means in a minute, but let me say at this point, I I completely understand why somebody might find it difficult to believe that a dead man got up and walked out of a tomb. Do you find that difficult to believe? I get it. And so did, the, so did the readers of this letter. Regardless of their religious beliefs or what time in history they lived in, the experience of all people throughout history is that dead people stay dead. And so the readers of this letter were not a naive people who believed that resurrection happened all the time. They found it just as difficult to believe then as we do today. But I think that there are numerous good historical reasons to believe that Jesus of Nazareth, that, one, that man specifically, actually rose from the dead, physically really rose from the dead. And we won't get into that so much today, but if you want to hear more about that, ask me. Let's talk about it over coffee sometime. I would love to discuss for you why it's reasonable to believe uh, that this, this specific man actually got up and walked out of a grave. So but for the first part of uh, true faith, we are supposed to believe in the real, physical resurrection of Jesus of Nazareth. But the second part of this is that we are to believe in our own real physical resurrection in the future. There are some who say that our, our resurrection won't be real and physical. It's, uh, it's kind of a metaphor, right? The benefits of Christ's, uh, you know, the, the resurrection benefits of Christ are here and now, not in some future afterlife. I get why somebody would think that. It's difficult to believe in a resurrection that is yet unseen. But a pastor I follow on Twitter posted uh, last week that he was preaching his Easter sermon on a passage that we read earlier in the service today, on, chapter, on page 5 of your bulletins, 1 Corinthians chapter 15, where it says, Now if Christ is proclaimed and raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there's no resurrection from the dead? But if there is no resurrection from the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. For if the dead are not raised, then even Christ, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then your faith is futile and you're still in your sins. Then those who have also fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, if, if in Christ we have hope in this life only, then we are 
of all people most to be pitied. That's what he wrote. And that pastor that I follow on Twitter, he, he said about his Easter sermon, my faith, uh, my death, my death, my future death will not be symbolic. It will be real. Therefore, a metaphorical resurrection is no real hope for me. Or we could put it this way. Anything less than a real physical resurrection isn't really very good news. A metaphorical resurrection might offer a better life now, a feeling of renewal, relief from the pain and difficulty of this life. But is that really any different than any other faith? Or a hobby? Or a road trip? Or medication or sex or a day at the hot springs? All of those things can provide us with feelings of renewal, relief from the pain and difficulty of this life. A better life now. We can find renewal and relief in any number of places. The problem is that none of them last. Each one of those things may linger for an hour or for a day, but then what? Real physical resurrection couldn't be more different. If death can be undone, if death can be undone, then what can't? If people will eventually walk out of graves, then what could possibly prevent real lasting relief and renewal from all the things that concern us? If the resurrection is true, then all fears fade, don't they? But more than just personal renewal, the real historical resurrection of Jesus accomplishes something that is vital, essential, that we should not miss as we read these verses from Romans chapter 4. Notice that very last word in verse 25. Notice that very last word, the word justification. And that's the third thing that I hope that we can see from this passage today. The third thing is we need faith. We need faith in the resurrection that justifies We need faith in the resurrection that justifies. What does justified or justification mean? It's a word that you'll hear Christians use. How does Jesus' resurrection justify? There are at least a couple different ways to take this. First, the resurrection of Jesus justified himself. It justified Jesus. Not in the sense of having his sins forgiven, because he didn't have sins, but rather the resurrection vindicated his claims about himself. Right? I mean, so when Paul the Apostle spoke with the philosophers at Athens, he said, The times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent, because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed, and of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. He's pointing to the resurrection as the vindication of Jesus, that Jesus is who he said he was, the Son of God, the Savior of the world. All the false accusations hurled against Jesus were once for all proven untrue. Jesus was not blasphemous. He was not a liar. He was not a lunatic. He was forever vindicated in his resurrection as the true Son of God, the Savior of the world. So first, the resurrection justifies Jesus. But secondly, Jesus' resurrection also justifies us. 
Look at verses 24 and 25. It will be counted to us who believe in him, who raised from the dead Jesus our Lord, who was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. All throughout the New Testament, the death of Jesus is described as for us, on our behalf. Likewise, his resurrection is not only a vindication of himself, it's a vindication of us too. Just as it proves that he is who he says he is, so also it proves that the, prom- the salvation that he has promised is real and true and final. It is finished, he said on the cross. How do we know? How can we be sure? Because he rose from the dead. And not just here, but throughout all of his writings, Paul makes it clear that the basis, the ground, the reason of our being declared righteous is what Jesus did and suffered on the cross, that righteousness that comes from God. Our problem was sin, and Christ went to the cross for us. And now our sins are done and over with, gone, paid for, washed away. All accusations and damnations against us, whether or not they are true, they are now all overturned. Whether they come from someone else or whether we hurl them at ourselves, all of those accusations and damnations are forever null and void. If we are in Christ, then we are justified, vindicated, even righteous. How do we know? How can we be sure? We can be sure because Jesus rose from the dead. Do you know how radical and utterly unexpected that message would have been received by those Romans who read this letter initially? Most people in the ancient world believed that worshiping the gods was basically making a deal with them. If you want something from the gods, then uh, like some kind of a favor, then you have to do them a favor. You go and you give your gifts at the altar and you, you go away hoping that maybe if you give them, they give you and you get what you want in return. Give them something and they'll do the same for you. That's how it worked. Sadly, first, first century Jewish culture had adopted this same basic attitude toward God. If you read from the rabbis at the time of this letter, you will, uh, you'll find nothing resembling what Paul says here in Romans chapter 4. Nothing resembling this. Their religious life became all about keeping the commandments to accumulate merits before God to secure his uh, favor by doing good, basically. It was kind of a belief in the cosmic scale in which good deeds and bad deeds are measured and each person hopes that their good deeds outweigh their bad ones. But in the end, God will measure each person. And if it turns out that the scales are basically even, if they're kind of largely balanced, uh, if then God puts his finger on the side of the good deeds and pushes down a little bit. And that's, that's, that was the first century rabbi's teaching. That, uh, what, that's what it means to say God is merciful. Is that if there's kind of a draw, God will tip things in your favor. But otherwise, you're on your own. I mean, as you might guess, there's nothing like that anywhere in the Bible. The religious people of Paul's day believed that there were some people who were good enough that they didn't even need God's help. The, the good side of the scales tipped automatically. They were literally so good that they didn't need help. And it's for these first century believers that Paul the Apostle is going back to the beginning, back to what the Bible actually teaches about their story 
and about the faith that comes with their story. Abraham was their patriarch, their forerunner, and his life was the paradigm and example for everyone who follows after them. So here in Romans chapter 4, Paul's telling them, you will not find any balancing of good deeds and bad deeds in the story of Abraham. It's just simply not there. Justification by your own works is the furthest thing from the story of Abraham's life. Abraham was justified not by what he did. He was justified by what he believed. The promise made to Abraham was that the world would be blessed through him and saved through his descendants, through the one Savior in particular, who it turned out was Jesus Christ himself. And Jesus himself said that Abraham rejoiced to see my day from afar. Abraham knew about the promises of salvation, and by believing in them, he obtained what was promised for himself and for all people after him. It was by faith, not obedience, that Abraham obtained God's righteousness. Do you know how radically and utterly unexpected that message remains today? How many of you have heard something like the cosmic scales theory before? And how many of us in our real day-to-day life, really, if we're being, I mean, really, how many of us in our day-to-day life believe that God's love for us depends on what we do or what we don't do? And when God looks down at you, he sees where you are, he sees what you're doing, does he smile or does he frown? We, I mean, we really think that it depends on what we're doing, don't we? If God looks at me and he sees me doing something, something sinful, then he's like, oh, you know, no, don't do that. But if he looks down at me and he sees me doing my good deeds, then he's like, oh, that's, that's a good job. I mean, that's kind of how we think. Paul is cutting right across the religious instincts of all human beings. I mean, we instinctively believe that our own salvation, our own eternal welfare is in our own hands, that we are captains of our own fate. That is the powerful tendency of our pride. And only the Spirit of Christ can overcome that. Even experienced Christians know how deeply ingrained is our belief that everything depends on us. We know how unnatural it is to live by faith and to depend on God for justification. No one is so good that he does not need to be justified. Not one of us. Listen, the God who created all things had to come into the world as a man to suffer for us, to give himself over to death and destruction on our behalf. I mean, surely that means that our situation is serious, right? And then on the other hand, no one is, on the one hand, no one is so good that he does not need to be justified. But on the other hand, no one is so bad that they cannot be justified. Right? I mean, if the one who suffered for us, if the one who gave himself over to death and destruction on our behalf was the God who created all things and is recreating all things, is there anything beyond his power? Listen, he can forgive even you. Even you. It doesn't matter what you've done in the past. It doesn't matter whether you're already a Christian or whether you've never believed any of this before. All of us, without exception, need to stop clinging to our own performance. We need to stop trying to justify ourselves. As the great Welsh preacher Martin Lloyd-Jones put it, 
As long as a man thinks he can save himself, he remains lost. God does not love you because of what you've done or because of what you will do or because of what you've promised to do. He loves you because of what Jesus did. And Jesus is raised for the dead, from the dead, proving that he is able to accomplish all of this. And if he hadn't been raised from the dead, then nobody would be able to believe. And nobody would need to believe. It would be pointless to believe. But he is alive today, and he can make you alive too. A vague faith won't do. Faith in anything else, faith in anyone else, besides the resurrected Jesus. Any such faith is nothing more than just religious pioneering. It's trying to get to the promised land by ourselves, on our own strength, and that just isn't enough. It never will be. Only faith in the God of resurrection will justify you and forgive your sins. Let me finish with a quote from an Australian theologian, Michael Bird. It's a little bit of a longer quote, but I think it's worth it, so bear with me. And I promise I won't read it in an Australian accent. I've noticed a huge trend of young evangelicals leaving their churches either to join Roman Catholic or Greek Orthodox churches or else to embrace liturgical patterns of worship that rehearse ancient practices. This back-to-the-past trend is, I think, being driven by the fact that many young people have become disillusioned with the never-ending church fads, cult worship of the latest and greatest. We're sick of turning pastors into celebrities. They're tired of jumping on and off ecclesiastical bandwagons. You got to keep up with the latest doctrines, watch out for the newest heretics, and attend the coolest new conferences. I remember one church leader telling me about all the fads that his denomination had gone through over the last decade or so. He said, we just wanted to be, we wanted to be seeker-sensitive churches, then welcoming churches, then healthy churches, then emergent churches, now missional churches. I'm tired of it. I just want to be the church. Church leadership gurus keep changing the narrative as to what the problem is and what the solution should be. The faith that Paul speaks about is different. It's not a fad. It's about a foundational narrative. By professing faith in Israel's Messiah, believers find themselves sharing in Israel's story of God's plan to put the world right through the Redeemer and a redeemed people. The example of Abraham shows that faith is the door through which we walk in order to enter a new universe pertaining to, the, to creation lost and found humankind fallen in sin and raised in glory. The act of faith, then, is no mere personal decision that leads to heavenly bliss in a post-mortem state. Faith puts us in the story. It makes us actors in the theodrama. It recruits us into the company of the gospel so that we follow in Abraham's steps all the way to Golgotha, to the empty tomb, to Pentecost, and then to the new heavens and the new earth. Faith means that we are a part of the story of God and his promises. Amen. So may it be with us.